1 Corinthians chapter 15. Hallelujah, hallelujah. How many have heard the phrase, out of sight, out of mind? Anybody, everybody? Out of sight, out of mind. It's a phrase that carries the idea that something is or can be either easily forgotten or dismissed as unimportant if it's not in your direct view. And I found that the older I get, the more this phrase applies to me. Uh, you guys have probably heard me say that uh, my memory is as long as my hair. Um, but I've also found that the busier my life is, that uh, the easier it is for me to get things, even things that are actually important. Uh, it's not that, you know, you don't care about them. It's just that they're not at the forefront of your mind. And so they tend to get passed over or forgotten. And for this reason, I've had to find ways to remind myself of things. Uh, if you, Zach and I yesterday were comparing the junkiness of our cars, and uh, I think mine wins, but, you know, he's, he's young, and young people always want to win at everything. But uh, on the front seat of my car, on the passenger side, there is a planner. And I have to write everything in this planner, uh, or either things won't get done, or... I'll try to put myself in two places at one time. I have to make intentional notes, intentional uh, 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 marks to know where I'm supposed to be and when I'm supposed to be there. And if I fail to block out that time, I, I will and have actually double booked, triple booked, even yes, quadruple booked myself for the same appointment on the same day at the same time. How does that work? It doesn't, right? Now, I've even started setting up redundancy, so not just making note of it in my planner because my planner isn't always with me. So I'm even making notes of these things in my phone because my phone is always with me. And on top of adding the appointment to my calendar, I'll set up uh, 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 reminders or alarms where my phone will go off X amount of minutes or X amount of hours before the appointment so I can make sure that I have adequate time to get myself together and get there if I have to do any type of travel. So with all these reminders, sometimes I feel like, uh, feel like, Rather, with that, uh, or rather, excuse me, with what sometimes feels like a too quickly aging brain and sometimes a, a too busy schedule and failing too often to get proper rest, which sometimes lead to uh, mental fog and difficulty focusing, I find myself needing these safeguards, the planner, the phone, the alarms. I need these safeguards, these reminders. In our text this morning, as Paul is speaking concerning the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, Paul begins his teaching by reminding the brothers and sisters at the church of Corinth of the gospel. Now, I want to call our attention to three things that come to mind with this reminder. The weight, the wonder, and the work. The weight, the wonder, the work. The gospel carries weight because it addresses the two biggest issues that have affected mankind since Genesis 3, sin and death. 
The gospel should cause us to wander because God, through the risen Christ, having conquered sin and death, chose to reveal himself to us, giving us life rather than the death we deserved because of our sin. The gospel calls us to work as sons and daughters who have passed from death to life through the direction of Christ. We now have a part to play in God's mission to seek and save the lost. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Let's first talk about the weight. For I delivered to you, he says, of first importance, the CSB says most important, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. This is the gospel. That Jesus came to the earth, lived a perfect life, gave up his life by being sacrificed on a cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb, we just sung about it, uh, and was raised from the dead three days later. And even though Paul in this chapter is writing in defense of the resurrection, I want to point us to the why of the resurrection. People acknowledge Christ's coming. It's widely accepted even among those who don't look to him for salvation. We're okay with this coming. We're okay with Jesus being an actual man who walked the earth. We're okay with this death. It happens, right? It's a natural progression of life. You live, you die. David in 1 Kings chapter 2 referred to his coming death as going the way of all the earth. I love that phrase. So we're okay with Jesus living. We're okay with Jesus dying, even with a claim of resurrection as wild as it is. He at least is on record of having shown that he has power over death at least three times. You have the widow's son in Luke chapter 7. You have Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8. You have Lazarus in John 11. So if his coming is acceptable and his death is acceptable and resurrection, at least where Jesus is concerned, is doable, what's the struggle? It's the why. The why is the struggle. If Paul is successful in getting them to affirm that they, uh, or rather that they believe what they've heard, the gospel that he preached, Scripture says that they received in which they stand, by which they are being saved, if they hold fast to the work uh, excuse me, word that he preached to them. 
If he gets them to affirm that their faith came as a result of a life-changing, doubt-shattering resurrection event that took a group of men who were in hiding and turned them into the most bold witnesses the world has ever seen, they would also have to affirm why. Verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died, here's the why, for our sins. If the resurrection is true and Christ died for my sin, that means that there is a God who is the creator, sustainer, and judge of all that I'll have to give an account to for how I chose to live my life. Many of us don't want that kind of accountability. We avoid it. We avoid relationships that call us to it. And in avoiding the accountability, we feel somehow as if we avoid the weight of the offense of sin and the penalty of sin. But we want God. We want the goodness. We want the blessing, the healing, the community, the grace. We want the resurrection to see grandma and uh, our favorite aunt, Uncle Charlie, We want God, but we don't want the accountability. Scripture says this, 1 John 1 and 6. If we say we have fellowship him while we walk in darkness, God without the accountability, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we, confess our, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. How often do you confess sin in your life? Do you feel the need to confess sin? David writes this in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Hear this. For when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David had no peace. He had no peace in his sin, but he found peace and forgiveness of sin as he confessed sin. Adam in Genesis 3 is driven by this weight of sin to hide himself from God. Scripture says, and they... They heard the sound of the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. The Lord calls out to him and said, Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Sin without the remedy that Paul is reminding us of in 1 Corinthians 15 leaves us in anguish and in fear, awaiting judgment and ultimately eternally separated from God. The weight you feel, the hand that was upon David, the fear that drove Adam and Eve into hiding is meant to be a good thing. It's meant to be a good thing. 
In John 16, speaking of the spirit, the helper that he would send to us uh, uh, to be with us in his absence, the scripture says this, and when he comes, the spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Feeling convicted is God's goodness. And his goodness, scripture says, Romans 2 and 4, leads us to repentance. To repent, of course, being to turn from sin and to God. And it is in this turning that we can and should experience awe and wonder. Because family, we are not choosing him in our repentance. He is choosing us. His goodness leads us. To repentance. So what does this choosing look like in our text this morning? So we move to the wonder. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verse 3. For I delivered unto you as, first, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared, verse 5, to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are alive still today. Excuse me, I added that. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, these appearances at first glance seem extremely random, right? Almost as if it's some kind of Jesus whack-a-mole. He's randomly popping up over here and over there. Oh, wait, he's over here. He appeared to Peter, then to the 12, then to more than 500. Now he's with James, now the other apostles, now he's with Paul. Where will Jesus pop up next? Well, we're talking about Christ, right? Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Does that sound random? He doesn't do random. He's very intentional in everything that he does. So what is he doing? Let's consider who's on the list. Verse 5 says, and he appeared to Cephas. This is Peter. Matthew 26. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You're also with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out into the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he, get, then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So you have Peter. Hold on to that, Peter. Then you have the twelve. Matthew 26 again, verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went on to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away from me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep 
of the flock will be scattered. Skipping down to verse 56, but all of this taken place, all of this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, then all the disciples left him and fled. Peter denied, the twelve fled. Still looking at the twelve, let's look at John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was with them, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. You have Peter who denied, the disciples who deserted, Thomas who is doubting. You have the 500 and then you have James. John chapter 7 says this. After, Jesus, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go up uh, about, excuse me, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booth was ahead, was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, and that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So it appears to James and then to the apostles one more time in John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And lastly, Paul, I promise you we're getting somewhere, going somewhere. Lastly, Paul, Acts chapter 8. And Saul, who is also Paul, approved of his execution, speaking of Stephen, who was stoned to death in the previous chapter. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, devout men, buried Stephen, and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Going over to Acts chapter 9, it continues, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So this is a list, the Jesus whack-a-mole list. You have those who denied him. You have those who didn't believe him. You have those who doubted him. Those who deserted him and the one who persecuted him. Which one of you, or rather which list, are you on? Are you on one of them? Are you on two of them? All of them? Have you been throughout your life? Which one are you on now? Are you in doubt? Are you denying him? Are you deserting him?
Next month, my wife and I will celebrate in just under three weeks, celebrate 22 years of marriage. Those who don't know, my wife is a total package woman. Y'all have heard that, right? Total package. Turn around and look at her. No. She's a total package woman. Not only is she absolutely beautiful, she has a brain to match. And you probably wouldn't know this until you really got to know her, but she's actually very funny. And I've often wondered why she chose me. I don't match her beauty. I don't match her brains. I'm occasionally funny, but only when I'm not trying to be. <laughs> there it is. I passed out that the Jesus whack-a-mole deal, but, you know, nobody laughed this morning. I actually stopped and just said it to myself several times. But again, funny when I'm not trying to be. She could have chosen anybody. There were certainly other suitors, but she chose me. Jesus' appearances may seem random, but they were not random. They were chosen. He chose to, re to reveal himself to Peter who denied him. He chose to reveal himself to James, his brother, who didn't believe in him. He chose to reveal himself to Thomas, who doubted him. He chose to, re to reveal himself to the twelve, even though they deserted him. He chose to reveal himself to Paul, who persecuted him. He's chosen you. And that family should spark childlike awe and adoration and wonder in our hearts. That Jesus, who is perfect in every way, would choose someone who, apart from him, is in every way imperfect. And yet that is precisely what is communicated through the gospel. That through his coming, he is choosing you. Through his death, he is choosing you. Through his resurrection, he is choosing you. So how do we respond? Final point, the work. Look with me at verse 8, 1 Corinthians 15. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believe. Paul says two things in verse 10 that I want to point us to, and we'll close with these thoughts and one more example. Grace was given, I worked hard. Grace was given by the grace of God. I am what I am, and his grace in me, grace towards me was not in vain. I worked hard. Now, is Paul working to earn grace? No, he's not working to earn grace, right? Paul is working in response to the grace that has been given. If we look back at Acts chapter 9, following his encounter uh, uh, with Christ where he was left blind for three days, God gave him instructions to find a man when he went into the city. And after those three days, we get these words. Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 19, he says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. 
And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on this, this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is Paul's response to being chosen. Confronted by the weight of his sin and left in awe and wonder that Jesus would choose to reveal himself to one who gave everything he had to persecuting the church. Paul was compelled to work. And what does that work look like? Proclaiming Christ, saying he is the son of God, proving that Jesus was the Christ. How? How was Paul proving Jesus was the Christ for the point of his uh, 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 vouching of the resurrection? How is he giving proof of the resurrection? His life. Verse 21 again tells us, confirms for us, and all who heard him were amazed and saying, is this not the man? Killing Christians, approving of it, dragging people out of from house to house, throwing them in jail. Did he not come here for this purpose? But Paul says, look at my life. Beautiful old song says, a change, a change has come over me. A change has come over him. There's something different about him. That's the proof, the life that we live. I'll no longer persecute him, but I'll proclaim him. He is everything that he said he is. Come and see for yourself. Oh, taste and see, Scripture said, that the Lord is good. Do we see any other examples of this in Scripture? Absolutely we do. We see a similar reaction with the Samaritan woman who Jesus met at the well in John chapter 4. And I don't want to read the entire thing for us because it's a lot of verses. But most of us, I think, are familiar with the story in terms of the conversation that he had with her. But I want to get down to it as he says, hey, if you knew the gift of God and who you were talking to, you would ask for living water. He said, whoever drinks from this water would never be thirsty again. She says, hey, give me this water. I don't want to have to come back to this well. Give me this water. Now, after that conversation, Jesus says this. Verse 16, John chapter 4, Jesus said, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you uh, uh, now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, 
Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Hold on with me. I promise you we're going somewhere. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak with you am he. 27, then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who has told me everything that I ever did, could this be the Christ? The wait, the wander, the work. Did he confront her on her sin? Yeah. You've had five husbands. The one that you're with now isn't your husband. The wander. Did he, did he show her grace? Absolutely. Absolutely he showed her grace. How did she respond? Come see a man. The weight of her sin, the wonder that Christ, the Messiah, would choose to reveal himself to her, compelled her to work. Do you see your sin? If you see your sin, if the Spirit of the Lord convicts you, Convicts your heart. This is God's grace to you. This is God choosing to reveal himself to you. And it should fill your heart with wonder and compel you to work. And with each of these, with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, his work was making God known to other people. With the woman at the well. Having her experience, her encounter with Jesus, she left and said, come see a man. Her encounter compelled her to go work. That work was compelling men to come. Do you see your sin? If you see your sin, are you in awe and wonder that God has chosen to reveal his son to you? And if you carry that wonder... Have you moved your feet to work to make his name known? May God stir our hearts and to go and to say to as many who would listen, come see a man. Let us pray. Father, we thank you.